see where we go. When I say we'll see where we go, um, mainly that's because I can't see very much at all. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, let me tell you my little issue. So, um, several years ago, uh, I can't remember, maybe five years ago, um, I had a, a cataract uh, operation in my right eye. So they take out the lens, your, your proper lens, and they put a, a plastic one, I, I think it's made of plastic, something like that, in instead. And uh, so I, I have this, uh, this uh, lens in my, my right eye, and everything's been, been brilliant. Well, I say brilliant, as, as good as my eyesight could have gotten. And, and then over recent months, months I, I've been starting to get uh, clouding on my right eye. And uh, it's a known condition that if you have cataracts um, and uh, you have a, an operation, the replacement lens can get a bit cloudy and you just need a bit of laser surgery, um, which uh, one of my sons offered to do with uh, his uh, uh, PS4, which has a laser reader in it. And I, I, I declined that, went back to the NHS and... Uh, and they're sorting it out. So when I, I say, let's see where we're going, uh, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here and I'm thinking to myself, I wish I'd done that in bigger print. Because I'm thinking, oh my word, um, that's a lot smaller than I thought it was when it was on the screen. Let's see how we get on. I, I'm, we've been looking at, just over a few weeks, we've been looking at the results of the uh, Who Cares survey that happened early on when I, when I arrived here. And... Uh, the headlines of this survey was to, to find out what is it that hurts the most in our community. What are the needs in our community that we as the church across the town may be able to serve our community better and help to uh, meet the needs. And these were the top ones for um, our town. Negative emotions, money worries, sickness, death, family relationships. And I think these are pretty much standard across the nation where these surveys go. And, and the thing about it is, one of the things that, that, that I've come to realize is that you never start something unless you've got a pioneer. You see, because we could turn around and say, okay, as a leadership team, we gather together twice a month. I don't know if anybody here is, uh, is currently considering um, the call to be part of our diaconate. The diaconate is, is, part, is the leadership team of this church. We've got nomination forms are out and about. And we're looking for God-given, gifted, anointed individuals who'd like to join us on our leadership team. And I can honestly say, it is a blast. It is. It's, it's, it's good. Anyway, we could sit around our table like we do, and we discuss, and we pray, and we seek God's face with regard to our journey as a church, our direction, the vision, the activities that we do. And we could just turn around and say, okay, we need to set up a, uh, a debt center. Which we could do. We could just set up a debt centre. But the thing about it is, that debt centre dies when there's no pioneer. It can be a good idea, but if it's not a God idea in somebody's life, it will fail. I don't know how many of you have ever been involved in ministries that were good ideas that are not happening now. And very often it's because they were a good idea, but maybe they weren't a God idea. When we started to look at debt in uh, Bexhill, where I used to work, um, 
we actually had a, a situation where somebody come out of the congregation and said, do you know, God has laid it on my heart to do something about the way that debt is crippling people in our community. And Ross was the lady. She went off and she got trained. She came back and she became our, our debt center manager. And she then gathered a team around her. And then we started to see people coming in, meeting with her and the team, sorting through their financial uh, crisis situations, and then going on to get themselves into a debt-free situation. And it was absolutely fantastic. The only thing about it, though, just to say, is that we would never have done anything in Bex Hill about the poverty and about the crippling debt that was around us if it hadn't been for God rising up somebody like Ros. Because you need somebody who is a pioneer. You need somebody whose God has touched and has uh, in some way agitated them into action. You see, amongst us all here, there are phenomenal gifts and abilities and experience. The only thing about it is usually those gifts and abilities and experiences are kept to ourselves. And we find ourselves settled and comfortable which I don't think is the way that things are meant to be. There's a healing ministry. God has said very clearly through the word, the the Bible, that uh, by his stripes we are healed. It says in Psalm 103 that he forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. So why do we not have a, a ministry of healing coming out of the church in our town, let alone out of this church. Because at this moment in time, we haven't got somebody who's got that burden. We haven't got somebody who's being prompted and stirred to break out and pursue healing and deliverance. Because this part, the thing about negative emotions, a lot of that is a spiritual thing. But we need people who say, you know, God, I'd like to find out about that. I'd like to invest in learning more about helping people come to that place where they have a Romans 12 mind of Christ. And this is what happens. God brilliantly puts the right people in the right place. But sometimes those right people in the right place need to be stirred up. I'm going to read to you some verses from Exodus chapter 5. Well, actually, I'm going to read the whole of Exodus 5. So we start in the Bible, and you've got Genesis. The next book of the Bible in the Old Testament is Exodus. This is the fifth chapter of the second book of the Bible. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may uh, hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert and offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you talking, taking, uh, taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. 
That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the foremen in, uh, in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it and put your, and put your work, uh, and, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt. Are you with me still? Say yes, Dave. Okay, so the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why don't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foreman went out and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you uh, treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten. But the fault is with uh, your own people. Pharaoh says, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw Yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Has anybody ever read that before? Bricks without straw. Bricks without straw is a term that um, explains a request without a resource. A request without a resource. I want you to do this, but I'm not giving you this, which you need to do it. And therefore, the children of Israel... 430 odd years in captivity, held in Egypt, 430 years, they have been slaves and working 20 odd generations, year in, year out, doing pretty much most of the construction work in the land. And then they come to a position where they are going to be uh, liberated Moses and Aaron are sent by God to speak to Pharaoh and to say to Pharaoh, uh, this is it, your construction team are no longer yours, we're taking them. And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. I don't think he said it like that, but it seems similar to that. And although there was this call to let my people go, the thing that Pharaoh did was adamantly say, no, this is not happening. But listen to this. This is the thing that I think is most uh, interesting and probably the main thing about what I'm going to say today is that the children of Israel, the Hebrew slaves, had spent so long as slaves that slavery 
had become their complete way of life and normality. Slavery was now life to them. And they found themselves quite comfortable in slavery. Look at this verse here. This is where, uh, oh, I've done that bit. This is where we have the Israelite foreman. So he is a Hebrew. He is one of the slaves. And he comes around and and he says this. I I love this. The Israelite foreman realized that they were in trouble. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just wait a moment. You've been in trouble for the last 420 years. Why don't you catch on that where you are at this moment in time, as a slave in a foreign land, is trouble? And you have this provoking by uh, Moses and Aaron, which goes to a conversation with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh ups the ante, and they turn around and they say, look at this, we're, we're really in trouble now. No, you were always in trouble. You're always in trouble. And this is what happens. You see, once things start getting provoked, once things, you might find it in church life, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but when God starts provoking and starts poking and starts inviting us on a journey, there are some who have been where they've been for ages and ages and ages and they resist it. They don't want to change. And therefore what happens is, They start to look at those who are instigators of change and blame them. Look at what happens. Look. Exodus 20. May the Lord look upon you. And this is it. He comes out and he goes to, he said, may the Lord look upon us as a, we look as a, I'm saying to you, Aaron and Moses, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've become, you've made us become a stench to Pharaoh. Do you know what? It's nothing to do with Moses. It's nothing to do with Aaron. It's actually God at work. You know when you're really in trouble? When you need more trouble to remind you you're in trouble. How about that then? You really are in trouble when you need trouble to remind you that you're in trouble. Here is a situation where those who are captive find themselves awakened to the fact that they're in trouble. They're stuck. There's a phrase for this. I come to realize that this week. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. You ever heard of the Stockholm Syndrome? Let me read to you what the Stockholm Syndrome is. I have to get close because my eyesight's not that great. The Stockholm Syndrome is a term used to describe a paradoxical psychological phenomenon (laughs) wherein hostages express excessive admiration or praise and positive feelings towards their captors, those who've kidnapped them, those who've abducted them. Yeah. 
These appear to be irrational in light of the danger or risk endured by the victims, essentially mistaking a lack of abuse as an act of kindness. You see, the children of Israel, the Hebrew slaves, have been in captivity. They had been held for 20 generations, and what was normal to them was actually what should have been abnormal. But they've moved into this situation where they no longer see the tragic situation that they find themselves in as being tragic at all. What they see is now normal. Sometimes we just need to stop for a while and just say, Lord, what have I got used to? What have I got used to? What have I resided myself in? What have I now put my feet up and sat back over that actually was never part of the plan? The Stockholm Syndrome comes out of a situation in 1973. In 1973, some uh, armed robbers went into a bank in Stockholm and uh, they were going to rob the bank. Everything went a bit pear-shaped. They ended up uh, five days in the bank um, holding hostages in the main vault. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Horrible situation. People taken hostage, held in a vault, and then there's negotiations with the police, and the police are coming back and saying, if you don't do such and such a thing, you'll do something else. In the five days that the hostages were being held, and this is the, the, the hostage situation. I love it, because you look at the, look, check out the vehicles of the day. You, you might have actually had some of these cars, looking at these... This is 1973. And here's a photograph. What they did, the police actually drilled a hole from above down into the top of the, uh, into the vault and eventually were able to drop tear gas in. Um, when they'd done that, they did the, did the hole. The guy who was uh, the main uh, leader, uh, Jan Volk Orison or something, um, he actually shot through this hole and uh, shot a policeman upstairs. But anyway... There's a photograph that they took inside the vault. Here's the really weird thing. In the whole scenario, which must have been horrific, those who were taken captive, those hostages, changed allegiance to 100% support and affirmation for the robbers. By the end of their time of captivity the robbers in the way that they'd acted, the things that they'd shared, the circumstances that brought them to taking uh, people hostage, ultimately in a failed bank robbery, brought such sympathy and an affection towards them that when they, the siege came to an end, nobody would speak against them at their trial. No one would speak against them. The best that they could get was eight years in prison for armed robbery. And here's the really interesting thing. One of the girls who was held hostage wrote to this Jan Eric Olsen whilst he was in prison. And when he came out, she married him. That's one of the stories. Isn't that bizarre? But let me just say, you have married. You have probably married your hostage taker. If you have found yourself in a place where 
you shouldn't be. But circumstances have left you there and where you shouldn't be has become normal. And that's what happens, you see. Just like the children of Israel, they found themselves in a place where they didn't feel that they were in bondage or restricted anymore. They felt it was normal. And then with this understanding of a movement called Bricks Without Straw. We need to get this stage bigger because I'm going to keep falling off of here. Oh, did I just slip that in? That was good. (laughs) Bricks Without Straw is that prompting, that prodding that moves us to make a change. Now, it may be a personal change. Circumstances may have come your way in your life that you think, I don't know how, how much worse this can get. And what happens is that, well, I'll talk about that later. Move on. You see, what the children had forgotten is that God's mandate is for freedom. God's mandate is for freedom. All of that list of needs that hurt in our community are in reality a call for freedom. We want to be free. We want to be free. And what we recognize from our understanding of Scripture is that's exactly what God's desire over us is. These are the words that that Jesus spoke. He stands up in the uh, synagogue and he unrolls this scroll and he reads these words out. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is taken from uh, Isaiah 62. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind. Yes, Lord, I'll have that. To release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of... Of the Lord's favour. So Jesus' mandate. The call of God upon the Son of God. Is a reflection of a prophetic word. Given to Isaiah. That is about freedom. We are to be a people of freedom. And I know that for one thing. Every single person who responds. To the questionnaire. Of what hurts the most. Was actually saying. I am bound. I am locked up. I am in prison. I am restricted. I am restrained. Because of these things. Yet the mandate. That we have as the children. Of God today. Is to take hold of this word. And see that. Worked out in our community. You see, you are carriers of freedom. You are. You are carriers of freedom. You need to deposit it somewhere. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians. He says this, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do you remember the song we used to sing about that? Do you remember that one? I think it was probably a Graham Kendrick one. It was one of the first ones that I learned when I, I started to go to church in the late 80s was very late 80s, it was 1989. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. No longer to be subject to the yoke of slavery. And we're rejoicing in God's victory. Our hearts responding. Is that it? Do you know it or is it just me? Not quite like that. Okay. 
Okay, similar words, totally different tune. Here it is. This is the call. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, the thing about it is, there's this... um, This move, isn't there? There's a move by Moses and Aaron to bring about a change in the thought processes of Pharaoh so that he would release the Hebrew slaves, the children of Israel, so that they could return to the land where they could honour their God. So they come with a word of liberation. The only thing about it is, is liberation and freedom are two separate things. The liberating is one thing. That says you are free. And freedom is that you're walking out in that freedom. It's okay saying I'm free. As John Inman used to say. I'm free. I may be free. But if I don't walk out in that freedom, actually I'm not. I may be liberated but I'm not free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. This is what Paul goes on to talk about in Galatians 5 with regard to that freedom. Listen to this. This is speaking to us. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. This is what the call is from uh, Isaiah 62 and, and the words of Jesus in the synagogue, in Luke chapter 4. This is what it's about. Do not use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. That's the call that God's placed on our lives. The entire law is summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Do you know... The saddest thing is when the body of Christ beats each other up. That we try to dodge the opportunities to love one another, encourage one another, to build one another up, to say something affirming. And actually all we want to do is get a jab in and one up on. Do you know that doesn't look like freedom in my book. That looks like sinful nature rising up. But that's because usually the individuals who do that sort of thing have been liberated, but they're not free. And it's freedom that we want. It's freedom that we need. Because if we don't walk out in the freedom right here, what chance have we got of leading people into freedom in our community? We're called to be free. The thing about it is, you see, is that... I might look at my notes in a minute. Maybe not. (laughs) The longer you stay in captivity, the longer you find yourself in a place that you shouldn't be, the harder it is for you to break free. Generations, 20 generations, 420, 430 years, the children of Israel were in captivity. In that side, it's ingrained. Now, this is beautiful because one of the things that, that I remember from uh, studying when I was at college was the importance of three generations. The state is that in, after three generations, something becomes permanent. But they've had 20 generations. Look at this. This is how the Bible tells us many, many times, records things about our God. 
And in the recording, it says something along the lines of, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bang! Three generations. And in three generations, it's made permanent. I think of this in my own life. I didn't know Jesus. I had no Jesus in my life. My family weren't followers of Christ. And I came to a place where God called me. I made a commitment in 89, and now I'm following the journey. Then I meet a lady, and then we get married, and then we have children, and we have two sons. And the two sons are the second generation now. The second generation. And the amazing thing is that last year, one of my sons got married. And I'm waiting for the third generation. I can't wait to be a granddad. And I'm so pleased they're not going to hear this. But I can't wait for them to have a ch- children. Because that's a third generation. Here's the problem, though. Let me tell you something about this, this is, which I find is quite interesting. You see, if you're following Christ, if you are first generation followers, if you've come to faith, and then your children very often meet the church before they meet Jesus. And that can also be a bit of a problem. How many young people go away from the Lord when they've got an opportunity to step back? I don't have to go, I'm 16, 14, whatever. I I don't have to go to church with mum and dad anymore. Therefore, I'll step back. And it's usually a lot to do with the fact that church has had a greater impact upon them than Jesus has. But if we move into the third generation, that's when things start to come together. The generations who found themselves... In captivity, the children of Israel, the Hebrew slaves, they needed provoking. They needed uh, some form of, of, uh, of a push to realize that they were not where they were. That it's been ingrained for generation after generation after generation. And now is a point where things are going to change. Pharaoh wasn't daft. The thing about it is, Pharaoh would have liked to have let them go a lot earlier. You don't have to have many plagues happening to realize that God has got an agenda that might not be your agenda. He's a a world-class leader, amazing politician, organizer, leader. He's an economist, a builder, a strategizer. It doesn't take many nights sleeping with frogs to realize that God is on your case. But every time that Pharaoh wanted to say go, he could only say no. Because God was using him as an agitator. So that the children of Israel would recognize that they needed to be liberated and they needed to be set free. I don't know if you have difficulties come across your path in in the past. And you find yourself where I found myself. I found myself so often just saying, it must be the devil at work. This bad thing on top of this bad thing upon this bad thing, it must be the devil. So I resist the devil. I blame the devil to begin with. Oh, this must be from the enemy, whatever this is. And let me tell you a little of my story. Seventeen and a half years I led a church in a beautiful part of the country, down by the seaside, 17 and a half years. And then things started to go a little bit wrong. No, not a little bit wrong. A lot wrong. 
and be the way that individuals were responding and the way that circumstances and situations were changing, I found myself uh, anxious, annoyed, depressed, on antidepressants, signed off work, wondering what is going on in my life. And the thing about it is, at the end of that story, become, comes a, a resignation and a moving on. And when I started to reflect upon what had happened in my own life, the thing that I started to do was say, devil, Satan, you've got in. Whereas actually, further reflection, months later, I come to that point of realizing I needed a Aaron and a Moses to provoke a move. I wouldn't be here today if those things didn't happen at the beginning of 2016. And I recognize that I am meant to be here. But I only recognize that I'm meant to be here because of that situation. And in that situation, maybe it's about time that I wrote a few letters to people. People who think that they did me a disservice, they were disloyal, they spoke against me, they passed rumors that were untrue. But those things were all bricks without straw that made me realize that Bexhill was not where I should be, not where I should stay. That God has got something else, something different, something new, some people to walk with who may just very well be the ones who carry the freedom to train, change a community for God's honor and glory. You see, friends comfort, but enemies provoke. Enemies are those who cause movement. And you see, if we're to be the church that God's calling us to be here, we've got to be a church on the move. And therefore, there may be circumstances and situations in your life that you think are just a layer of bad upon a layer of bad upon a layer of bad. Well, let's reframe it today. And say, Lord, what are you saying? And how am I going to move differently because of this bricks without straw situation you've placed me in? Sometimes it's not the enemy. Sometimes it may very well be God. And as much as I rebuked the enemy back in 2016, it was one elderly, faith-filled Christian called Thelma who put her hand on my hand when I was sat around at her house having a bit of a pity party. And she said to me, one day you'll realize this was actually God at work and you will give thanks. It was God at work and I do give thanks. Something's changed for you. It's all going pear-shaped. You're wondering what it's all about. Maybe you might just recognize it's God at work provoking, leading you into something of an amazing freedom you've never experienced yourself. That when you do experience it, you will be the pioneer 
freedom bringer to your friends, to your neighbours, to this community. Let's stand together.